Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21 as we continue through the book of Matthew. If you're using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's going to be on page 827. How do you help people change? Sometimes people need information. The people we are trying to help simply do not have the knowledge to live as they should. I'm sure we can all think of ways in which we have simply just not known what to do. And we needed information. We needed to leave that ignorance behind and to educate ourselves. But there's also a problem where you have all the information you need. And this can be a little harder to help people change. Because ultimately, I can't change you, and you can't change the person that popped into your head when I started this sermon. Ultimately, a person has to see for themselves that they need to change. And that's extremely difficult. In one sense, it's really helpful if you can make it their idea. But how do you do that? How do you get them to take ownership both of the solution that you feel they need to take but them also having ownership of it. You know, this is one of the challenges of teaching is is leading people to the right answer without just giving it to them every time. Because in one sense, it makes real and lasting change harder. But in the Bible, we see one way to do this. And one example of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to read from this in a little bit, a longer, longer section to remind you of the story. But 1 Samuel chapter 12 is where the prophet Nathan confronts King David over his adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent murder of Uriah. Now, when you're a prophet and you got to go tell a king he's wrong you got to do so in the right way because that's not a democracy and he could have your head before lunch. So Nathan is smart. Nathan tells him a story. Let me read you the story and then what he does with the story. Again, it's sort of a longer section. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, 
The man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So I want you to see not only the content of that story, but what Nathan was doing. He told David a parable. And David saw clearly what was wrong in the parable. And in doing so, Nathan got him to speak the proper judgment. But then Nathan was able to say, actually, that story was about you. And thankfully, what does David do in response? He repents. After being shown his sin, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Our story today has a lot of similarities to what I just read you. Rather than Nathan, it's going to be Jesus, Jesus tells a parable. And he's actually going to get the Jewish leaders to pronounce the correct judgment in the story. And not to get too far ahead of myself, but Jesus is going to turn the tables on them and say, actually, that story was about you. But then what I'll save for later is how do they respond? Do they respond with continued rejection? Or do they respond like David, who respond with repentance? And then we can see ourselves in this. How do we respond? Will we harden our hearts to Jesus? Or will we respond with godly repentance? So let's look at the parable, beginning in verse 33. Follow along as I read. Hear another parable. There was a master of the house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. To them. Here, Jesus is telling another parable. He's using the very normal details and circumstances of life back then to explain greater spiritual 
truth. So let's review the facts so far in the story. You've got a landowner, and he has planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower for it. We have a very nice vineyard here. As one of the commentators writes about these details, the pains the landowner takes shows his care for the vineyard. He builds a wall to keep out animals and a watchtower to guard against thieves and fire. Now, not to get too far ahead of myself here, but in a desire to show the continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament, I think it's important to point out that using a vineyard as a metaphor for God's people is actually something done in the Old Testament. So this wasn't new to Jesus. He was actually using similar language from the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 that Bill read earlier. And I want you to see, just again, as sort of an aside, of the continuity between, we, we don't have two books. We have one book with two parts. And Jesus himself uses the Old Testament language that the people would have been familiar with, even in his particular circumstance. But the landowner leases out the vineyard to these tenants, these renter farmers, and he goes out to another country. And again, as would be normal for such an agreement, verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. But instead of keeping their end of the contract, verse 35, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And if that were not bad enough, verse 36, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. The wickedness and sin and evil in this story is clear. The landowner had every right to send servants back to the vineyard to get payment from the tenants. You know, in one sense, this is not a complex story. It's pretty obvious who is wrong in this story. And we'll see this a little later when Jesus quizzes the people who are hearing this story because they get the answer right. But we see clearly the terrible crimes committed against the man and his servants. Again, it's, this is not a complex metaphor. It's right for us to see these servants as the prophets whom God sent to his people throughout history. And sadly, throughout the history of God's people, they did not always treat God's prophets well. Jeremiah tells us that there was this prophet Uriah, a different Uriah than I mentioned earlier. This is Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, who was killed by King Jehoiakim. You can find that story in chapter 26 of Jeremiah. And what was Uriah's crime? that he prophesied in the name of the Lord in words like those of Jeremiah. In fact, in a few chapters, in chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus is going to say this about Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and you were not willing. You know, one says this parable, in a very concise way, gives us the history of Israel rejecting God's prophets, his messengers. And in one sense, that could be enough. And Jesus could say, hey, you guys rejected the prophets throughout history. Stop it. But the story does not end there. Look at verse, beginning verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. There's something to verse 37 that has this weight. It reminds me of the story of of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac or being in the process. There's this slowing down, there's this emotional weight And in verse 37, finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now it's important to understand that phrase in the context of the parable. It's meant to add this, as one author calls it, a note of pathos or or a tragic and sorrowful weightiness to the picture. This is not... That Jesus didn't know what was going to, that God didn't know what was going to happen to Jesus. Right? God the Father was not caught off guard when Jesus was crucified. But again, this is a story meant to be in real life. And that's what a father would say. He would say, Finally, I will send my son. But again, we need to feel the tragic and weightiness of that, because we know what's going to happen. But again, this is consistent with how God speaks in other parts of Scripture. So Ezekiel 33 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? See, God doesn't take pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. He desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But there's a tragedy in this story of hearing the Father say, I will send my son. They will respect him. But we see verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now this ends, this ends the parable part of the story. And again, I think it's pretty clear to see the different metaphors used here of the prophets as the servants of God and the Son being Jesus himself. And the parable both looks back to the history of Israel but also looks forward to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
But Jesus isn't the one to say all those things here. Again, we need to not only see the content, but how Jesus teaches in this moment. Because in verse 40 and 41, Jesus drops out of the parable and turns to the people who have been listening to him. Look at verses 40 and 41. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to them, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. As I mentioned last week, oftentimes when Jesus asks the Jewish leaders a question about his parables, they do get the right answer. And here they get the right answer. They see clearly that the tenants were the wicked people, the ones guilty of the mistreatment of the servants and the murder of the landowner's son. And they correctly pronounce the justice of capital punishment as a response to these crimes. In the story, the landowner does nothing wrong and his servants and sons are beaten and killed. And not only should the landowner execute the guilty, he will let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. The blessing of work and sharing in the profits of the vineyard with the owner will go to other people. Now for now, before we look at the next part of the passage, I want you to hold on to those ideas, but I want you to see how Jesus doesn't tell them what to say. That the people have made this clear pronouncement. And their pronouncement was that the people who killed the son deserved the landowner's justice and for the land to be given to other renters. So with that in mind, let's turn to the second part where Jesus then, after they've said that, now responds to them. Let's look beginning at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus in response to their answer to his question, quotes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You know, in one sense, we can see this story as a continuation of last week that's central to the fighting between Jesus and the Jewish leaders is their rejection of him as God's promised Savior. And here Jesus connects their rejection with Old Testament scriptures. As we've seen before, when Jesus says, have you not read? Well, they had obviously read. (laughs) Now, there may be a slight difference in your translations or translations you've read before between cornerstone and capstone. The phrase is literally head of the corner. And ultimately, in this context, the difference is negligible, whether it's a capstone or a cornerstone. Either way, we can see that the rejected stone has actually been chosen to be the most important stone in the building. 
And we need to understand the nature of rejection. Even though Jesus is this rejected cornerstone, that does not change who he is. The fact that the builders reject it does not prevent the stone from becoming the cornerstone. In fact, the stone becoming the cornerstone is the Lord's doing. No rejection of Jesus ever changes the fact and the truth that he is God's chosen Savior. And this then leads to Jesus' pronouncement in verses 43 and 44. And as I read it and as we go through it, I want you to see the similarities to what the Jewish leaders said based on the parable. Look at verses 43 and 44. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Just as the people had rightfully judged the evil renters in the story, Jesus now turns to the people listening to talk about the judgment on those who reject him. So we see this in two ways. First, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And then verse 44, And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Using that picture of the vineyard taken away from the wicked renters and using the picture of what happens when you fall on a cornerstone or a cornerstone falls on you, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, affirms their answer to his parable question by clearly stating that rejecting the sun, rejecting the cornerstone, will result in God's judgment. And remember that additional wrinkle of their answer that the owner will find other renters. Here Jesus includes the kingdom of God will be given to a people to produce its fruits. This is both a call to the people around Jesus to not reject Jesus as their countrymen had, but also it anticipates the future movement of the gospel into the Gentile world. That as many of the people of Israel at that time rejected Jesus, the gospel will later go out into all the nations to the other renters who will believe and produce the fruits of the kingdom of Jesus. We have to see both layers here. That the ones who truly belong to Jesus are the ones who produce the fruits of the kingdom. That first fruit is the fruit of receiving Jesus as the promised Savior and not rejecting him. As Jesus said in John chapter 6, people said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That is the first work we produce, that first fruit we produce is our faith in Jesus which then leads to a life of producing 
the fruit of good works and the fruit of the Spirit. But even then, again, the passage does not end here. See, Jesus makes a pronouncement, and again, in parallel to the pronouncement of the Jewish leaders, that those who reject the Son will find the judgment of the Father. And the vineyard will go to those who will believe the Son. But the story actually ends with seeing how the Jewish leaders would respond. Look at verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So Matthew tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees figured out that Jesus was speaking about them. And they probably then realized that they gave the answer to the question about deserving judgment. And then that Jesus, in the style of the prophet Nathan, had said, you are the men. You are the ones who have killed the son and rejected the cornerstone. But as with so often these stories of Jesus' interactions with people, that ultimate question is, how will they respond How will they respond when they understand that this was about them? Look at verse 46. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They are not deterred from their plot to arrest Jesus even after they had given the right answer, even though the judgment that Jesus was talking about was right from their own logic, they refused to repent and believe. And rather than fear the judgment of God that Jesus talked about, what do they fear? They fear the crowds because the crowds held Jesus to be a prophet. They do not fear the judgment of God. They fear losing their popularity and their power. They do not fear rejecting the promised Savior. They fear losing the political support of the people. And because of this, they persist in their rejection of Jesus and do not repent. Can I take one more hop back to David and Nathan? in contrast to the Jewish leaders who still, even when they give the answer that judgment is deserved, even though they still reject that truth, even though it really came from their own lips, in contrast to them, that last verse I read in the story of David and Nathan, when Nathan says to David, you are that man, what does David say? I have sinned against the Lord. In contrast to the leaders, when David is shown his sin, and it was a great sin, 
And it was a clear sin, just like in this story. He humbly repented of his sin and was forgiven by the Lord. He realized he deserved God's judgment because he had said it himself, just like the Jewish leaders had. And when we see those in contrast, it shows us the same question we must ask ourselves. How will we respond? How will we respond to the guilt of our sin to the Father that is clear and undeniable? Will we respond with rejection like the Pharisees and the chief priests? Or will we respond with humble repentance? And for those of you who have never placed your faith in Christ, that is that first step of a relationship with Jesus. That ultimate question of who is Jesus to you? Is he truly God's promised Savior? And the first step of that is to come to Jesus in humble repentance of your sins and faith in Jesus. Do not reject him as God's promised Savior. And when you do receive Jesus by faith, you will be forgiven of your sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. There's no fear of judgment then. Because God's justice is satisfied in Christ. Do not respond to the truth of Jesus with stubborn rejection, but rather with humble repentance. A couple of thoughts as we close. Again, at the center of all of this is who is Jesus? We see in this story and throughout Matthew that God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son. Again, just a quick, easy one. If you see a parable that Jesus is telling and there's a father and a son, nine times out of ten, the son is Jesus, okay? (laughs) God the Father sent Jesus, God the Son, to our world to offer salvation to all who would repent of their sin and receive Jesus in faith. The wicked renters, the Jewish leaders rejected the Son, rejected Jesus. They did not repent. They did not believe. And in doing so, they brought God's judgment on themselves. This is a hard part. This, God's judgment is real. God has a righteous wrath against sin. But while we were still sinners, while we were still deserving the wrath of God, God made a way for us to be saved by sending his son. He sent his son to die and rise again as our substitute and representative so that all who repent and believe will be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. Secondly, as we see this story It's a great warning and call for us to evaluate our own lives with clarity. The same clarity that we so often have when we're evaluating other people's lives. 
in the story of Nathan and David and in our story today, people have so much clarity when they think we're talking about somebody else. The Jewish leaders clearly condemned themselves because they didn't know they were talking about themselves. You see, we're really good at seeing the sin in others. And there are times where we need to help call back our brother and sister. That's true. But this passage reminds us to see ourselves with the same clarity that we see others. So that if we see something in someone else, it's not turned on us and you are that man, you are that woman. And because of that, may we be people who are quick to repent of our own sin. Because when we do that, by the grace of God, we find full forgiveness. And thirdly, we see in this parable this this hint that will happen after Jesus' death and resurrection of the movement of the gospel to all the nations. The Jewish leaders themselves said that the land should be rented out to new renters. This previews how, what Paul would say later in the book of Romans as to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. And this is a cause for praise for those of us who are Gentiles, that we're included in God's kingdom. That God, by his grace, included us who were far from God into his people. But it's also a call for us to take the gospel that even when those around us might reject the truth of Jesus, that we are to find other renters who would believe and who would join the vineyard. Whether that's across the street or across the oceans, God has called us to be his messengers to find those who would repent and believe the Son. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning that we would not reject your Son, but that we would come to Jesus in repentance and faith, and that we would not just see clearly the sin or the judgment deserved by others, but that we would clearly see our own sin and see ourselves rightly, but that we would repent and find forgiveness in you. And God, as this parable pictured the gospel moving to all the nations, that you would use us as your witnesses in our communities, at our work, and across the world to bring new workers into your vineyard, to call people to repent and believe in Jesus as the promised Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island, And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. 
You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.